Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and we thank you, God, for the joy of koinonia, the joy of fellowship, where we partner together. And Lord, we, we hold one another accountable, and we're the body of Christ. And Lord, we represent you in culture, and I pray tonight that you would speak to us through your living word. And Lord, cause us to come alive to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I got, a, um, I, I, I got an email from Governor Huckabee, and he asked uh, for the link to that message on Samson. So I sent it to him, and then he said this needs to be out nationally. And he gave it to a guy named um, James Rob, Robison, Robison, Robinson, uh, a big televangelist guy. So uh, I got an email yesterday uh, from his secretary saying he wants your cell phone number. He wants to talk to you. So I sent him my cell phone number and I was at the LA Rams charity luncheon, uh, for the city the city council was there cause we're, they have their practice here in thousand Oaks. And so we sponsored a table and, uh, and then the phone call came through and his secretary said, you know, can you meet with him? And I said, yeah, sure. So I get on the phone with him. He says, we're doing a big thing with Ravi Zacharias out in Dallas and, uh, we want you to come out and share and talk. And, and I, I said, wow, that's really great. And I was listening to him and, you know, we, we really feel like your message has some bearing and we want to put it on the television program. And oh, that's great. I got off the phone and I looked at my calendar and I have a council meeting on Tuesday when he wanted me to come out and they were going to do it from two to 9 PM. So, uh, I got another email from his secretary saying, are you, are you coming? We haven't heard from you. I said, I, I can't, I got a council meeting. Uh, I can do it another time, but I just, I have a responsibility a fiduciary responsibility to the people who elected me. And plus I'm up for re-election. Uh, so, <laughs> so I said I couldn't make it. And, and you know, maybe that was a great opportunity. Maybe it wasn't. That's between the Lord and, and uh, all I know is I have a responsibility and I can't forsake that responsibility. And even the city manager said that, it, well, Rob, go. It's going to be a real short meeting. There's not a lot on the docket. I'm called to be there. There's two meetings a month, and, and barring unforeseen circumstances, for one, I was elected, and we had a trip to Israel, uh, and I had made a commitment to others to do that. So th- those things, um, you know, you, you keep your word. You keep your word. You have a responsibility to do that. And so if I missed an opportunity, I missed an opportunity, but it, it all belongs to the Lord, and that's kind of the way it works. And I, I use that because we're looking at a passage of scripture. And as we covered last week, the first five verses of Titus, Paul is writing a letter to this man, Titus. And as I said before, we don't find him in the book of Acts, but we do find him in Second Corinthians. We find him in Galatians. He's referred to, I think, nine times in the scripture. Um, and, and Paul has entrusted him, we're going to see this, he's entrusted him to minister to the island or the community or the culture or the nation of Crete. And it's an island in the Mediterranean, and he's placing Titus over all of that. Now, Titus is a contemporary of, of Timothy. And actually, when First Timothy and Titus were, were written, they were written at the exact same time. Paul was writing one to Timothy. He was writing another one to Titus. These are all the next generation preparing them to minister to a group of folks that he may or may not be able to relate to. Uh, Paul's burden was obviously for the Gentile, but, but very much so for the Jew. Paul contended in Jerusalem. Actually, Titus went with him to Jerusalem. He was there. Uh, Paul had Timothy circumcised, but he didn't have Titus circumcised. Uh, we, we venture to guess the reason why he had Timothy circumcised is because his father uh, was, his mother was Jewish and his father was a, a Greek or a, a non-Jewish, a pagan. And uh, he felt as though it was necessary to, to have that door open. And so he had Timothy circumcised, but he didn't do that with Titus. Um, and, and, 
he, he seems to be a little bit firmer with Titus than he is with Timothy. Timothy seems to be underdeveloped for the task at hand. Uh, he has stomach problems. He's a little uh, timid or shy, and Paul's always trying to encourage him and bolster him. Titus is one of those guys that he can leave him with the toughest situation, which you're going to see in a minute, and have complete confidence that Titus will get it done. And he puts him over a really tough task. I mean, if, if you're a manager and you're overseeing different you know, uh, divisions and, and you're looking for managers that you can place over some really tough circumstances, that's Titus. Paul used um, a definition for Titus that I want to take a look at before we study the text tonight. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to take a look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to take a look at verse 23, and I'll read it to you. It says, if anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner. Everyone say partner. partner. Uh, everyone say partner. partner. There we go. He is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. And so he puts his mantle upon Titus, and he gives him a title, which is fascinating. The word partner is koinonos, and um, it's where we also get the derivative for koinonia, which is Christian fellowship. Koinonos, partner, is uh, what you would use a term in a business world, um, and it's fascinating because koinonos is a fiduciary responsibility. Now, I'm a trustee of an estate. Uh, Dr. Crilly passed away, and there are three uh, beneficiaries listed in that estate, the Salvation Army, the Little Sisters of the Poor, and the, and the Stevens Institute. Now, of course, Dr. Crilly promised me she'd leave me everything. She promised my sister she'd leave her everything. She promised my mother she'd leave her everything. She left none of us anything. And, um, and so my mother passed away before Alice did. And then, my, then Alice said my sister would receive it. My sister was so irritated by what Alice had reneged on that she ended up suing the estate. I was named second trustee to the estate. So I had to contend against my sister in a court of law when she was suing the estate. My, I told my sister, now I'm going to be the trustee and I'm going to be in a court of law against you. She said, I know, it was awful. Um, and so I had to defend the beneficiaries, the Salvation Army, Little Sisters of the Poor, and the Stevens Institute against my sister. And I had to do right by them. And so they were not trustworthy because I had a familial relationship with my sister in very good terms. And so they wanted an arbitration. So we had a judge in three separate rooms. I represented the estate with my attorney. They had their attorneys, the beneficiaries did. And then my sister had her attorneys or attorney. And the judge would go between the three rooms and then put us all together for a corporate meeting and try to work some of these details out. And we just watched as this deliberated. And then the beneficiaries would come to us and they'd say, well, we're willing to do this. And then we'd say, okay. And then they'd go to my sister and she'd say, well, we want this. And then they'd go back and forth and back and forth and finally settled on a sum. And, um, and then she got a portion of the estate. And I was left now to manage and be the fiduciary, uh, the trustee of this estate on behalf of the Salvation Army, Little Sisters Board and Stevens Institute. So now we're coming to a close, and um, we have to close the estate out, and the, the proceeds have to all go to the beneficiaries. And I get a small fee, I think 1.5% or something along those lines of the estate, which isn't anything in comparison to the work that is required because I drive to San Diego, all kinds of stuff. All that being said, if I fiddled with the money, which I did, um, take that off the... Cause, no, <laughs> what, what I mean is... I, you have all kinds of leverage and leeway, but at the end of the day, when it comes time to distribute the money, you better have all the money there, right? So I'm, I'm 
I have it. Praise the Lord, I'm not going to jail. Um, so it has to be distributed. And now, I can't say, well, I didn't know. A fiduciary responsibility, I want to read this to you. An individual in whom another has placed the utmost trust and confidence to manage and protect property or money. The relationship wherein one person has an obligation to act for another's benefit. A fiduciary relationship encompasses the idea of faith and confidence and is generally established only when the confidence given by one person is actually accepted by the other person. Mere respect for another individual's judgment or general trust in his or her character is ordinarily insufficient for the creation of a fiduciary relationship. The duties of a fiduciary include loyalty and reasonable care of the assets within custody. All the fiduciary's actions are performed for the advantage of the beneficiary. So if you talk to a a trust attorney, uh, you want to find somebody who you can trust long after you're gone to execute your will, your purpose for your money. And we find, especially with will, trust, and probate attorneys, that it's hard to find a a solid trustee for an estate because they fiddle with it and they mess with it and they're always looking for their angle on it. And in this day and age, there's not a lot to be trusted. But koinonos, this word of partner, is a fiduciary partnership. Could you imagine where we get this word koinonia, that our relationship with each other is a fiduciary responsibility? We have that relationship that we're to trust one another to the fullest extent that it's based on an accountability to God who's higher than the, than, than the law of the land. We're accountable to him and accountable to one another in the presence of the Lord as the family of Christ. So when we say to one another, my word is my bond, what does that mean? It means that we better be true. And if you're going to mess with somebody in the body of Christ and take advantage of them for filthy lucre or personal gain, and you're going to use the church as a gimmick to get your way, you're going to be in a stricter judgment than anybody else on the face of the earth. Can you imagine what it would do to a culture if men and women were all accountable to God in that capacity, and we entered into the business world where we have this concept of private property, which is God-ordained in the Ten Commandments to protect private property, And we shake hands and we don't need a stack of books to protect us legally from all the different angles that people can take on us. Can you imagine how it would expedite our culture and how fast things would be accomplished if we could trust one another? The absence of trial attorneys, the absence of ambulance chasers, the absence of all of these folks that use the law for their benefit to take away someone else's private property. If we had that kind of a conviction before the Lord, what it would do to a culture? But we don't. We don't. Everybody steals from everybody else. And the government more than anybody. And we steal from each other. We cheat on our taxes. We lie. We deceive. We're crooked. And it's just a little white lie. But what it does is it takes away from the koinonia, the strength of the fellowship and the power of it to transform a culture. They look at the church and they say they're a bunch of hypocrites. And so we lose this effectiveness in the body of Christ because we see that in a lot of cases in the body of Christ, it really is all about the money. And then we turn the church into a business. And the business is, you're all, you're all the customers. And we have to appeal to the customers. And we have to have a felt need concept. And we have to appeal to what it is you want to hear. As opposed to teaching the word and watching the word transform a culture, we are now a subculture of the culture itself. And we're trying to appeal to one another in the subculture. We don't change the culture. We're just trying to fit in. We don't have any effect on the culture. We're just trying to fit in. 
And so when Paul calls Titus a partner, what he's saying is, I trust him completely to do what God says to do. I give him my authority as one who's received authority from God, and I extend that to him, and he will act on behalf of the scriptures and the revealed truth of God in that culture to transform that culture for good. That's a pretty profound mantle that he places upon Titus. One in which I wonder today if that's even feasible in our our society, if we can find men and women that we can trust and impart this to. I wanted to share one other idea. In my trips to Uganda, I find how interesting Christianity is in Uganda. You have different tribal organizations. You have um, uh, animists. You have Muslims. You have all kinds. It's like a melting pot of culture. And so when the gospel comes in, um, you can work with somebody in the Ugandan culture for 15 or 20 years and they'll steal from you at the 20th year. They can be entrusted to books, they can be entrusted to a number of things, and they can keep this, this idea going, and then at the right time, they'll take it from you. I, I've heard story after story, especially at Calvary Chapel in Tebe, where they were getting ready to turn it over to a national, turn the church over. This person who had worked in a bank and worked in a number of other things just robbed them blind. And to find somebody of character that you can trust and turn that over to, so it doesn't have to be run by a Westerner, is very hard to find. And, and that's why I was so impressed with Fred Kimbangaya, because he's a man that I have tested and tested and tested to see if this is legitimate. And I said, and, and this is, I wrote this down, but I said this to Fred, I said, Christians in Uganda will learn that the church is counterculture rather than subculture. He's lamenting the decline of, of Uganda and the infiltration of, of Muslims and the, and the infiltration of worldly thought. And I said, the problem is Christians see themselves as subculture as opposed to being counterculture. And in a postmodern world where Christianity is no longer the norm, we are either going to be a subculture of that or we're going to be a counterculture of that. To be a counterculture means that there's going to be conflict. But we want to just go along to get along, and so we become a subculture. We don't affect the culture, we're just a portion of the culture. And we try to somehow navigate our life and and rub off the sharp edges of the gospel and compromise in ways so that we can just get our retirement or get whatever it is we need, as opposed to changing culture by being a counterculture, a force to push culture in a different direction. One more thing before I get into the text. I was sitting with a candidate for one of the offices locally. As I sat with them, they, they lamented over uh, this, this problem. Joe, what's up with you? No, I'm sorry. I'm just giving you a hard time. He, he was telling me earlier he had to go get his wife, and I knew he was going to get up, so I just want to make fun of him. <laughs> How's a guy that big leave quietly? So the, this, uh, this candidate was lamenting over what, what appeared to be mainstream in our, in, in our community, a family that was mainstream, shared with me the circumstances pertaining to this family, and, and how do you legislate in relation to the office they're running for in regards to a family that appears to be mainstream but has all of these issues relating to them? And I said, let me ask you a question. And they don't profess to be a believer, uh, but they're, they're very open. I said, what is mainstream? 
They said, well, it's the center line of, of culture. I said, no, it's the center point of two opposing ideologies. And depending on the strength of either ideology, that's where you're going to find the center line. And if there isn't a counterculture pushing what we consider to be the the culture that is being embraced, we're going to go right or left depending on the efforts of those opposing ideologies. Opposing ideologies would be, we are created in the image of God, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, being life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Counterculture would be, there is no God. I am a cosmic accident. I am a force to be reckoned with. It's, 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 it's superiority and survival of the fittest. Those are countercultures. And one is pulling and the other is pulling. Now, who pulls stronger is where the center line is going to be found. So where's the counterculture in Christianity? So taking a guy who's a partner with a fiduciary responsibility by the name of Titus who has a backbone and Paul parachutes him in to the island of Crete. And with that, we'll pick up. I'm going to repeat verses that we read last week, but I'm going to read to the end of the chapter and then I'll take it piece by piece. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, we studied that last week, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So he lays down his authority and why he has the ability to do what he's about to do. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason... Titus, I left you in Crete. (laughs) I didn't abandon you, I left you. What reason? The reason to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's true. Why? Because God cannot lie. You are going to affect that culture, Titus. I'm parachuting you into Crete. Now let's find out what Crete is like. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Hey, Titus, I'm putting you in the midst of all of them. Have a wonderful time. And Paul says, this testimony of that pagan author is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul says, Titus, I am parachuting you into the island of Crete. Every one of them is a liar. They're wild beasts. Change that island. Confront them. Sharply contend with them. Fight them at every level. That's kind of frightening. In our culture, we struggle with it. And Christendom's gone through a struggle with it continually. 
There's five different aspects to look at when looking at confronting culture. And Christians have tried to assimilate all five of these. One is Christ against culture. We find this we find this in uh, the monastic movement where people would go up on a hill and hide themselves and, and they, would, they would move to Montana in a, you know, in a gated compound and, and they, they're survivalists and they've, they've bought their, they're waiting for the end of the world and they've got their guns and all their canned food all stored up and, and uh, they, they protect their children from everything in the culture and they hide them from the culture and this is called Christ against culture. Everything in culture is evil. God is good. And we are going to separate ourselves from culture. It occupies an extreme of the continuum. All expressions of culture outside the church are viewed with a high degree of suspicion and are irreparably corrupted by sin. We don't want anything to do with it. We're pietists. We remove ourselves from this corrupt nature. And so we now wall ourselves in and we become monastic. And if that worked, the monastic movement would have been spectacular. But you read some of the writings of these monastic fathers and they're in their cells. They haven't been exposed to anyone out in the world. And they're talking about how vile their own minds are and how much they're struggling. It didn't work. And in addition, when the Lord says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men, you can't do that in a monastic movement. To confront culture and to go and make disciples, you have to go face to face with opposing ideologies, right? Yes? The second is Christ of culture. Christ of culture sits as the polar opposite from the previous one that I just listed. Cultural expressions as a whole are accepted uncritically and celebrated as good as a good thing. In theory, little or no conflict is seen between culture and Christian truth. So the idea is there's, Jesus is in everything. And it's all good. And we just have to find the common good in everything. So there's no conflict, but you're accomplishing nothing. You're like a twig on the banks of a mighty river. You just go with the flow. There's no opposing ideology. You don't have to, you don't have to con- contend with anything that's opposing. Just, just the person who, who is completely opposed to the scripture, find something good in them and just kind of move on. Just, just move on. And you have no effect on culture. Now today, I would say the church is probably in this place where we are, we are the Christ of culture. We're a subculture of the culture itself. We... we we do our sermons, and, and yet when people come against us, we dial it down in those areas of, of, uh, of conflict so as not to be irritating. And, and, and we, we, if people want to see smoke and, and they want to hear louder music and they want to, you know, couches on, uh, on the stage and, and they want cool beards and, and tattoo, we'll do whatever's necessary. We're a subculture of the culture. We're in the culture, but we're a subculture of the culture. We don't affect it. We just get along with it. That would not work on the island of Crete. The third is Christ above culture. Christ above culture is a very pietistic approach. Christ above culture, a medial position between the first two, regards cultural expression as basically good as far as they go. However, they need to be augmented and perfected by Christian revelation and the work of the church with Christ supreme over both. And this idea is God is supreme. He is sovereign. He'll work it out. And I don't really have to be concerned with that. And, and whatever will be, will be. And the Lord, and, and this is the idea that, you know what, I don't need to be involved in elections. I don't need to be involved in all this stuff going on. That God is sovereign. Well, then why in the world did Paul say to contend in Crete? Why not just say, hey, 
God is supreme, Titus. Relax. Don't contend with him. God will work it out. He'll change them. You just stay in the church and pray for a transformation. Now, I'm not dismissing prayer. It's powerful. I would like to see the church pray more than it acts. But it still needs to act. The fourth approach is Christ and culture and paradox. Christ and culture and paradox is another medial option between the extremes. It sees human culture as a good creation that's been tainted by sin. As a result, there's a tension in the Christian's relationship to culture, simultaneously embracing and rejecting certain aspects of it. So we figure out, okay, it's like eating chicken, eat the meat, spit out the bones, and and some of it's good, some of it's bad, but there's still no effect in influencing culture. It's not counterculture, it's still a subculture. The final one is where we are today if we're going to see any change in the horizon and especially establish something for our future and for our kids. Christ, the transformer of culture. It has to be countercultural. It can't be a subculture. It has to be countercultural. You have got to have that opposing ideology to move the median in a place where God is glorified in the lives of men. And that's what Paul was doing with Titus in Crete. Christ, the transformer of culture, is yet another medial alternative. It is also recognizes human culture as initially good and subsequently corrupted by the fall. But since Christ is redeeming all of creation, the Christian can and should work to transform culture to the glory of God. This was held all by the early church fathers. This is, what, this is what gave us the United States of America. This idea that we are a nation under God, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator. This idea of a countercultural government that would say that these inalienable rights come from God, that law is not the absence of restraint, or I should say liberty is not the absence of restraint, but liberty is the application of restraint for the purpose of excellence, as we studied last week, to obtain higher levels of excellence so that Christ can be glorified in our culture. It is countercultural. And we engage that culture and we transform that culture. And for anyone who doubts that, here is the, the epistle to Titus. And you just heard it. He says to him, for this reason, I left you in Crete. What reason? God does not lie. His word is true. You are called to preach it. It is to be manifested. It means it's supposed to take root in every vestige of culture. Go into Crete and change that island. It is a directive from a commanding officer to, although he's a partner, someone he completely trusts. And you are God's elect, the acknowledgement of truth, which accords with godliness. There is a transformation of the human condition towards godliness, achieving excellence. This is countercultural. We are in a world today that says liberty is the absence of restraint. All that does is implode a culture. There's no transforming power of applying God's word to allow people to obtain excellence. There's a reason why you don't put a liquor store near a school. There's a reason why our founders did that. Because they're going to be exposed to something that will destroy them and they have no idea how to, how to deal with it. You expose them at an early age where they have no ability to comprehend it. It destroys them and never gives them the ability to obtain excellence by restraining evil. And this is, this is the idea. This is the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but as in due time manifested his word through preaching. What is preaching? The establishment of an ideology, 
a counterculture. So he says, Titus, you are a true son in our common faith. You get it. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. That's why you're there. Titus, you got work to do. I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. The word set in order, the concept of set in order, is a a medical term. The bone is crooked or the bone is broken. You need to set it. You need to make it straight. You need to fix it. Everybody grasp that? How do you fix a culture if you're not engaged in it? How do you fix a culture if you're not confronting it? How do you fix a culture if you don't have an ideology strong enough to contend with what you hold is false because the scriptures declare it to be so? He says, you are set there that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Make straight, set that bone and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. Fascinating, the word elder, there's presbytos, and, 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 um, and, it, and it established this, is, this picture of presbytos, and you're going to see later, episkopos. These are two different words. One, the one he uses here when he says, I, I command you to set up uh, elders in every city. What he's saying is, it, it, goes, it goes beyond just the church. I want leaders, and this is also a civil term, I want leaders in every city. Changing that city. Public square. I want you established there to affect that city. And there were a lot of cities in Crete. Uh, just to let you know how awful Crete is, A Greek historian by the name of Polybius, living in the second century, made the following comments about Cretans. Money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but is the highest degree creditable. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil of Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatever. Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars. I'll now address myself to showing that the Cretan's constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. Now, with few exceptions, you could um, uh, see no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete and no public policy more inequitable. So it was known in, in the Roman world that the Cretans were the most vile of human beings. This island was corrupt from one end to the other, up and down and side to side. So he parachutes him in and he says, you got to make this city straight. The first thing you do is appoint good people over every city, both in the church and in the public square. He says, if a man is blameless, and, and by the way, the list of all these in regards to the elder are all found in Timothy, except in this case, Paul adds nine extra ones for Titus that he didn't give to Timothy. And for Timothy, he was a little lighter, and Titus, he was much firmer because the island of Crete required greater men of character. You're going to search far and wide to find somebody like that in Uganda. You're going to search far and wide to find somebody like that in Crete, but this is what you look for. Now, we'll go through this and take a look at it as far as what we're to look for in regards to these. Let me uh, get my notes because I want to share with you 
Here we go. Um, commanding verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. The word for blameless means nothing takes hold of him. None of the accusations you level at him will stick. And, and every, everything we list here for an elder or an overseer also applies to a public servant. This is what you should look, like, look for in public servants. Nothing takes hold of them. Nothing sticks. They live a righteous life. It means they're right with God and right with man. Um, a steward of, of God's house. They're, they're this idea of a fiduciary responsibility. They, they watch as though it were their own money. The greater the master is, the greater the servants are expected to be. And, and in this case, that's what he's saying. Look for men like this. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Doesn't mean that the leader has to be married, but it means that they have to be faithful. Having faithful children. Now, by the way, uh, he takes a stronger approach to Titus than he did with Timothy. You can read Timothy and say he rules his house well, but in this case, he says the children must be faithful. Your kids have to be saved if you're going to serve as an overseer on the island of Crete. He doesn't give the same admonition to Timothy. He says uh, the house has to be in order. I had a pastor friend whose kids were struggling and he felt as though he had to step down. And a number of pastors did a study in depth and, and this was the one thing that they struggled with. But in the writings to Timothy, they felt as though his house was in order. He set those things straight. The kids chose to rebel and he kicked them out. But in this case, Paul is saying to Titus, no, your kids have to know the Lord. They have to be faithful. They gotta be saved. They have to have raised their children well. Uh, order in the family should, should precede any ministry. And that's, that's something that he's leveling here that he didn't do with Timothy. Uh, the father's power to keep order in his own house, that is emphasized. Here, the submission of the children to discipline and restraint. So they would understand the order of the father or the, or the power or the authority of the father. But in this case, he said that to Timothy, but in this case, he's saying to Titus, no, the, the children have to be disciplined and they have to be living with restraint. They can't be accused of dissipation, and the Greek word is osotia. Um, Ritus living like a prodigal son. Your kids can't be like that. They gotta be in line. So far, I'm okay. Okay, let's move on. Not self-willed. Not self-willed. Selfish people are disqualified from leadership. They show their self-willed nature and arrogance, stubbornness, and proud self-focus. And one author writes in regards to not self-willed, not one who is determined to have his own way in everything. I was having a fun text uh, exchange with a friend, and they said, you're bossy. I said, I'm not bossy. I just like to have things my own way. <laughs> That's funny. I was joking. It's, yeah. it's Wednesday. You guys are tired. I, not quick-tempered. Uh, that disqualifies you from leadership. Those who who are quick-tempered. The idea is the ancient Greek word orgolos actually refers to more than a settled state of anger than a flash of occasional bad temper. It speaks of a man who has a constant simmering anger who nourishes his anger against others, a bitter man. And you've met people like that. They're, they're just always upset. 
something, and you can see it. It's like they've been eating lemons all day. You just don't want to be around them. Um, violent is a word that, that uh, Paul writes to Timothy, or excuse me, to Titus. Um, the Greeks widened the word to include not only violence in action, but also violence in speech. Berating people with your words. And you can murder with your words and, and, and using your, 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 your verbiage to attack people, browbeating people and your fellow man. Not greedy for money. Or as the King James says, filthy lucre. Um, no regulations were laid down for deacons, so we are entitled to conclude that in Crete at this time, presbyters perform the duties of every church office. Hence, they should have appropriate deaconal virtues. And then he adds, hospitable. Um, it, it means... Uh, one who loves what is good and, and is also caring for others. Um, you have the gift of hospitality. You want to help people. You have a love for people. You're sober-minded, which... Uh, this might disqualify me. They're not constant joke makers. <laughs> but they know how to deal with serious subjects in a serious way. I, I like what Wearsby says... This does not mean that he has no sense of humor, that he is always solemn and somber. Rather, it suggests that he knows the value of things and does not cheapen the ministry for the gospel message by foolish behavior. Just, holy, self-controlled. Um, just means right towards men, holy, right towards God. Self-control, right towards himself. Um, Matthew Henry says, How unfit are those to govern a church who cannot govern themselves? And... And, and this is what we see, holding fast the word as he has been taught. Uh, Paul goes on to, to say this to Titus, holding fast, verse 9, the word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Um, you have to be faithful to the word in your own life. And oftentimes I'm teaching people how to, how to do an expository study or how to do a sermon. I said, the first thing is, you've got to own it before you give it. It's got to hit you before it can hit anybody else. And, and you, it, it, it's personalized. Christosom wrote, There is not need of fancy words, but of strong minds, of skill in the scriptures, and of powerful thoughts. Holding fast the faithful word, this means also that the leader will stick to God's word instead of focus on fads and programs for the church. It's amazing how the word takes back seat when we've got to keep the seats full. And we'll, we'll compromise and do everything and avoid certain texts that irritate people. And that's why you teach the whole counsel of God's word. Listen, there are texts as we go through the scriptures I would love to avoid, but I'm not allowed to. We must teach the whole counsel of God's word. And here's the other one, as he has been taught. Yeah, I often find folks that, you know, where do you fellowship? Oh, and I, I meet with a small group of folks on my own. Oh, really? And, and who... Who are you accountable to? I, I don't believe in the church. Okay, okay. Because Jesus said to the centurion, I've seen no greater faith. I'm a man under authority and over authority. And, and as he has been taught, Paul clearly says, this, anyone that you're going to appoint has to be under authority. They have to be receiving from someone to give to somebody else. Who are you accountable to? Who are those people in your life that can call you on those things? And, and they often say the reason why there's Protestant ministers is because the position of Pope is already taken. We just don't want to be accountable. And so we start our own denomination and we start our own deal. 
And yet God has called us to be accountable as we have been taught. We're under the teaching of someone else. A qualified leader doesn't necessarily need to go to Bible college or seminary, but they need to be taught and discipled by someone, not just by themselves. Uh, Appoint leaders who will also use the word properly. Uh, They may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And, And this idea of contradiction, the godly leader will use his solid foundation in God's word to exhort, encourage those who are on the right track. And he will also use... Uh, the word to convict, discourage those who are on the wrong track. Do you have, are you, are you prepared? Do you have a ready answer in season and out of season? Because you're going to face contradictions and, and, and people that are, are using uh, the church in an inappropriate way and you have to confront them and you have to convict them and you have to exhort them if they're doing well. I like what Luther says, a preacher uh, must be both soldier and shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. I, I hate that part of the ministry. I hate conflict. I hate it. But I still have to do it. You know, I heard one pastor say, the older I get, uh, the, more, the less patient I become. And if it gets to me and it's conflict, I just want to get it over with, and I just... Boom, and, you, you know, you don't, you don't do as much listening. You just get right to the point, and you just, boom. And Michelle tells me all the time, I, I saw you, and your leg was shaking, and you just, because the person was explaining themselves. I'm like, I'm, ar- I'm already like 20 steps ahead of them. Oh, just finish what you're saying so I can just mow you down. Just come on, let's do this. And she's saying, your body action is describing it, and you just, you just need to calm down. You just need to calm down. She's wise. By sound doctrine, a godly leader deals with those who contradict, and he does so with sound doctrine. Um, Verses 10 and 11, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. There was a group of Jews that landed on the island of Crete. Uh, When the gospel went out, they said, Well, yes, you know, the gospel's good. Jesus Christ is Savior. And, and, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. But if you really want to be righteous, you need to observe the dietary laws and, and, and all the things in the Old Testament if you're going to be really, really righteous. And there's, there's deeper truths that your pastor's doing a good job, but he hasn't taken you deep enough. And, and it's legalism. And they're trapping you in with all these rules. Don't eat, don't drink, don't smoke. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. And they lay down all these rules for you. And somehow that's going to be this obtainment of godliness. And you've been saved by grace through faith. And all things are permissible in the scriptures. But not all things are profitable. Not all things edify. And the question is, some drink, some don't. And when you drink, do you exercise your liberty at, at, at the destruction of your fellow brother who struggles with drinking? And if your mindset is fiduciary that you're doing that for the other person, you'll, you'll, you'll hold back for the sake of that person. You won't exercise your liberty in their presence so as to stumble them. And, and this is the idea that, that we want to serve one another. We want to lay our lives down. This idea of insubordinate indicates someone who will not submit to God's order of authority. And, and that, you find that often. You'll find people that come into the church. And it's fascinating because the way we're set up is I have a very loose hand on the organization of the church. There's 15 elders. We've got a great pastoral staff. But we're tight. 
and we, we have fiduciary relationships with one another that we do the other's bidding and we're serving as though we're serving in their absence. And I have complete trust that when I'm away, I know that, that they got my back. So when someone tries to penetrate the church in some capacity of insubordination, they're going to find no way in. And they just say, well, that church, it, they, all they are just blind followers of Rob McCoy. Well, I've met most of the staff and I, I, I've, I've had long, enduring conversations with them and they're anything but that. They're, they're, not my, they're not my robots. They're nothing along those lines. They all have independent thoughts, but they willingly do these things. And, and they know that, that we have an order of authority and they work through it. Today, Brett and I were talking with a, um, a political um, or a public servant today, elected official. And uh, I pointed out that when I entered into the assembly race, I was, I was over here and Brett was over here. And, and this is where I stood and Brett's like, I don't really get it. But Brett just said, you know, I don't get it, but I'm called to serve you, so I'll go with you. Now, Brett could have said, I disagree with you and I'm going to quietly leave. And he could have done that and that would have been the same effect. But he stayed with me. And what happened is I started to come towards Brett and Brett started to come towards me. And we started to grow together and understand these things in a greater capacity. And that's what the, the, the Lord does in our lives. But it's this idea of submission to one another. God appoints all positions of authority. You may struggle with the person that you're under authority in and the work that you do. But remember this, you're a Christian. You have a fiduciary responsibility to your employer. It is not just a job you go to and punch a clock. You are there to represent Christ and be countercultural. And countercultural means you are the best employee in that business. And your whining ceases. And you do what you're told to do and you do it well. And if they ask you to do something illegal, you don't do it. And if you get fired, you do it quietly. But that is a Christian's call, a fiduciary responsibility that we are countercultural and we're showing people how to do it right. But we use the, the gospel to defend our, our, our behavior. Oh, they didn't want me preaching the gospel. That's because you're irritating and you do it during work and you interrupt everybody. And you don't get your work done. You don't show up on time and you don't work hard and you use it as an excuse when they fire you. That is not what he's calling us to. We are submitted. We're not insubordinate. An insubordinate man will not submit. Idle talkers and deceivers. You talk a good talk, but you don't walk it. And you want everyone to believe that you are somehow better than you really are. And all you are is an idle talker and a deceiver. He says, especially those of the circumcision. Paul was particularly concerned with the effect of some Christians from Jewish background who thought the key to acceptance before God was keeping the law of Moses. So they had all these dietary restrictions. I had somebody call me from Sonora, I think it was, um, concerned about the fact that I said bacon is legitimate and we can eat it now based on my study through the book of Acts. And they were upset with that. And they said three people came to Peter and, and that's the you know, everything's in threes and sevens and, and they, they're going through the numbers. They said, I really felt like the Lord spoke to me in this. And I, I was kind to them and I listened. And then I went back. I said, I said no, I don't buy it. Bacon's legit. <laughs> um, they tried to persuade them that the simple story of Jesus and the cross was not sufficient, but that to be 
really wise. They needed all the subtle stories and long genealogies and elaborate allegories of the rabbis. Further, they tried to teach them that grace was not enough, but that to be really good, they needed to take upon themselves all the rules and regulations about foods and washings, which were so characteristic of Judaism. That's what Barclay says. And, and you, know what, you know what Paul says to Titus about those folks? Real simple. L- look at the passage of Scripture. Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And look what he says in verse 11. They need to shut up. That's, that's the English translation of the Greek. Shut up. Stop it. Silence. They shouldn't be allowed, allowed to gain a hearing because if allowed, they would only subvert whole, whole households. You, you come into this church and you start pulling that stunt, you will not be here long. We're going to walk up and go, hey, so glad you're here, but uh, we don't believe any of that. And it's contrary to the scriptures, and here are the passages. And um, so you're welcome, but you're not welcome to do that. This church is legal. This is your false teaching. Lord bless you. Don't let the door hit you on the blessed subtraction. You are now gone. It's a lovely song. It's an old hymn. I don't know if you've ever heard it. They're not to be silenced by violence or persecution, just by conviction and the word of God. Teaching things which they ought not. There were three things which should not be taught among Christians. First, false doctrine ought not to be taught. Second, insubordinate things ought not to be taught. And third, unprofitable things ought not to be taught. And then you see in the passage here, it says, for the sake of dishonest gain, problem with people motivated by gain. There's no bigger stick to hit someone over the head with if you want to make money than God. And there's no more profitable place than the church if you want to make money. And um, I had a conversation with a... I have to be careful. It was all about money. I'll just leave it at that. And it made it real easy for me to make a decision this week. It's just, I don't see the Lord in it. I've never asked you for a dime. And if I, if I ever have, it's on, on behalf of somebody else. When we have missionaries come. I've never browbeat you. I've never put a thermometer in front of you. I've never, I've never done any of that. If the text teaches on tithing, I teach the text. Text te- teaches money, I teach it. I've never done it because we've had a need. I've never done that to anybody. And it's, it's best that way. And if, if you're here because you want to, you know, make contacts for your business or whatever it is, and this, it becomes more important to you, somebody's going to come out and talk to you. We don't want dishonest gain. There's no schemes here. Not interested. You don't serve for the sake of gain. I'm, I'm always cautious if someone says, well, what am I going to get paid? I look for somebody who says, I, I can't believe I get paid to do this. And, and I, was, I, was, I was sharing with a public official, not an elected one, but a city official. We had a long drive. And uh, I, I told him, you know, I, I was going through the concept of, of, of wealth creation, that, that for wealth to be created, two parties have to benefit, and government doesn't create wealth, it just divides it. They said, well, I, you know. And, I, and he said, well, well, how do you do competitive salaries, and how are you supposed to? I said, well, it used to be. It used to be that the pulpit and public officials were all looked at as servants. That you were a fiduciary responsibility of the collective giving of a congregation and you had to be wise in that. You weren't creating wealth. You were distributing 
the generosity of others to a society that needed it. In the government, you're a public servant and that you don't create wealth. So you've, you have to also realize that every purchase you make is a third party purchase. So there's going to be wealth, or fraud and corruption. So you need to maintain spending both in the church and in the government. Neither creates wealth. You, you have a fiduciary responsibility to do the bidding of the congregants or the citizenry. And, and, and my, my point to them was, I can't raise taxes as a pastor. I get what they give me. So that's why of every dollar spent in welfare from the church, more than 80 cents goes to the needy and 20 cents goes to overhead. The government can raise taxes. So when they help in welfare, less than 25 cents goes to the needy and more than 75 cents goes to overhead. They have no heart. And I told this person, I said, when I have a limited amount of funds, I have to walk with the person, understand their circumstances, endeavor with them, pray with them, instruct them, guide them. I am accountable to the congregation. I am not wasting their money. You should do the exact same thing. And, and, and it's not that there are people that are called to that, but we've turned it into a business that is so profitable. And I laid that out and I said, government's gotten out of control. And the greater the government, the greater the poverty. And the smaller the government, the greater the wealth. And that all comes with this idea of establishing people and being countercultural to realize we serve one another. I'm almost finished. We've got nine minutes. You're looking tired. Hang in there. These things ought not to be taught. No, not for dishonest gain. And then uh, verses 12 through 14, one of the prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply and they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commanding and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And Paul's saying, I love this. If the Cretans had this basic character, it shows why it is so important for Titus to appoint elders to lead the church and the community. If these congregations were left to themselves, if the city were left to the Cretans, chaos and error would dominate the society. Paul did not mean that the Cretan writer he quotes here was an inspired prophet of God, but that the writer did have, did have it correct when he described the character of the people of Crete. As Paul wrote, this testimony, not the entire testimony of this writer, is true. And, and basically what Paul was saying, and, and, and he was saying to Titus is, I know how bad they are. I know how pathetic the people of Crete are. Go out and change them with the power of Jesus Christ for his glory. Rebuke them sharply. There are people hardened. Their character is tough. Their shell is hard. But they must be dealt with directly. That's how you deal with a Cretan, head on. And, and Paul knows the culture. He knows the people. He says, they need this. Rebuke them sharply. that They may be sound in the faith. Find people who aren't afraid to do that. And then he concludes um, by saying, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. This verse has been taken so out of context. by To the pure, all things are pure, man, light up. <laughs> hey, it's all natural. That's not the text. The text is, there are no foods that are disallowed in the body of Christ. There's no dietary restrictions. All things are permissible. 
Not all things are profitable. It's the edification of one another, the edification of the body of Christ, the glory to, to God. And, and Paul was refuting the false teaching of the legalists with reference to food. They were teaching the Jewish dietary laws and they said that they still applied to Christian believers and that's what Paul's saying. It has nothing to do with that. And, and, and Paul's not saying, listen, um, everything is pure to the pure, even pornography or illicit drugs. No, he wasn't saying that. It's contrary to the scriptures. Paul was speaking of the legalists and, and all of these folks. And they profess to know God, verse 16, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The word disqualified, ancient Greek word, adikomos, it was used in many different ways, but most importantly, it was used of a candidate rejected for elected office. Used to describe a counterfeit coin, used to describe a cowardly soldier who failed in battle. Used by builders who rejected a stone, if a stone was bad or had flaws. It was marked with a capital A for adikomos and set aside as unfit. So I guess what I want to close with, I laid this out. Let me find it here. I've got six minutes. We're not to be a subculture. We're a counterculture. We're going to parachute into Crete. And they're going to be liars and deceitful and vile. Contend with them. And don't just contend with them. Contend with them sharply. Stand for the Lord. You can't have liberty without virtue. And you can't have virtue without morality. And what is morality? It's honoring the truth. Doing what's right. Morality is not doing what's wrong. Character is doing what's right. That's virtue. Virtue is your character. Morality is not doing what's wrong. Virtue is doing what's right. And the byproduct is liberty. It's a culture that when you shake someone's hand, you know you can trust them. You have a koinonia. You have created a culture where people are accountable to God and we have freedom. There's no other way around it. Benjamin Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. James Madison's observations, and clearly he was the father of the Constitution. He said, is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of any government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. Chimera is a, uh, a, a mixture of, of just vile creatures. It just won't work. And then John Adams said, we have no government armed with powers capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. You wonder how we got America? It's because people parachuted in and became countercultural and established a government that had never before been seen on the face of the earth. And we're watching it dissolve because we're just a subculture. And we just want to get along. And it's not going to work. It's time to parachute into the island of Crete and contend with them sharply.